Let us then let us then return to Acts chapter two, and for our text, we would really focus upon the section from verses fourteen to twenty-one. But I would like to choose our text from verse twelve. In verse twelve, we're told, and they were all amazed. And were in doubt, saying one to another, What meaneth this? And the title I'd like to give to the meditation this evening is, What does this mean? What does this mean? And from verses 14 to 21, the Apostle Peter begins to explain to them what was happening on the day of Pentecost. And really he begins to answer this question that was posed by some. What meaneth this? And we know that in verse 13, others mocking said, these men are full of new wine. Now two weeks ago, we looked at the first section and we looked at what happened there and we sought to elaborate on the wonderful works of God. What happened there? Well, the Holy Spirit came at the day appointed, 50 days after the Passover. The Lord Jesus had reminded his disciples that they were to be endued with power from on high, but they were not to leave Jerusalem until this would happen. And therefore they gathered faithfully, they were united, and they gathered faithfully. And we would be inclined to believe that they devoted themselves to prayer and to the worship of God. And they were calling upon the Lord Jesus that he might fulfill the promise and send the blessed Holy Spirit. And therefore they were all together, they were in some real way obeying the Lord Jesus. They had not drifted from Jerusalem and they were gathered there waiting for the promise to be fulfilled. And then what do we find in verse 2? We find this word, and suddenly, suddenly. You know, we need to get back here and think about this for a moment. Here they were in obedience to the Savior. Here they were, wherever they were. Maybe they were in the, the upper room, or maybe they were in a part of the temple. We can't be certain. It doesn't matter. But they were gathered together, in, united in unity, seeking the Lord's blessing and favor, looking for the coming of the Holy Spirit. What happens? Suddenly, suddenly, something happens. And this is the way with God. This is what God does when he's about to bring revival. You know, we can fall into a trap that somehow by our behavior and by what we do, that we can somehow orchestrate a revival. We cannot do it. We cannot do it. We have to realize this. This is a work of God. And he suddenly came upon them. It's interesting to note. Suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. They were sitting down at this time. Now we are ones who believe that in public prayer we are to stand. In our worship we stand for prayer. They weren't standing. They were sitting down. Maybe they were relaxing. 
Maybe the formal time of worship was over. Maybe they were having some kind of informal fellowship. We do not know. But the point is that God broke into them. Suddenly, this happened, and they were all transformed. That, my friends, is what God does. You know, we can follow the pattern. We can be obedient, and we should be obedient. We should confess our sins. We should forsake our sins. We should seek to mend our relationships. We, could, we should seek to live and to walk in the light of the Lord. Yes, that's what's required of us. But the blessing doesn't follow automatically. It's God alone who will send the blessing, and he will send it suddenly when it pleases him. That's what happened here. Suddenly. Therefore, friends, this should make us excited. This should make us come to the house of God with anticipation. This should make us to come to the house of God and to cry out to our God that he would visit us, that he would visit us here even, in parting this night, that he would come suddenly upon us, that he might transform us and change us. It's not beyond God to do these things. Or it might be, friends, we might gather with one another later on. It might be an informal fellowship. Who knows? Suddenly, God can move. God can work. And we are not in any sense to confine him. We cannot fetter God. You cannot fetter the Holy Spirit. He does as he pleases. That's what happens. And will we not acknowledge? Will we not realize? This is what we need. This is what we need. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoken tongues. Is this not a wonderful encouragement? How can this possibly be an encouragement for us, you see? Well, it is an encouragement because they all were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoken tongues. Yes, the apostles did it, but the others did it. There was 120 of them there, and they were all filled with the Spirit. What happened a few days before this? What happened? There was an election. It was done by, by lot. Matthias and Justice. Matthias was chosen by lot. Justice was overlooked. Justice would be just like any one of us. He would have a fallen human nature. He would be a Christian, yes. But he would have a fallen human nature. He might, and I stress, he might be someone put out. He wasn't chosen. He wasn't chosen to be an apostle. Matthias was chosen in preference to him. On the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came upon them, what do we find? All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. Matthias and Justice, the women, all of them. Is that not a sense of encouragement to us? We're not all leaders. We're not all office bearers. But oh, do we not all fit together? Is there not a plan and a purpose for every single one of us? Of course there is. And the Holy Spirit filled them all. And they were all useful. They were all servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we notice too, surely in, the, in these opening verses, do we not notice that what we saw here 
was a reversal of the curse of Babel. What, what is Babel? What's the curse of Babel, you might say? Well, we go back to Genesis, Genesis chapter 11. And here the peoples of the world, they gathered together and they were going to make a great tower. And they were going to ascend up into heaven. They were so full of themselves, so full of pride. Here we are, we're great men. We can build a tower. We're going to make our way to heaven. What did God do? God confounded their language so that one would speak and another couldn't understand. And as you would imagine, the project came to naught. There was a curse, and from that point, the nations began to separate, and the different languages came about. But what do we find here? We find that curse has been reversed. And what is God doing? God is making a new humanity. This is a new start from humanity. He's calling people out of all nations into the kingdom of God. And he, is he there began to reverse that curse of Babel. We would also notice too in these opening 12 verses, surely this when we see that the gospel was proclaimed to foreigners in their own language. Surely this would remind us, friends, that as far as it is possible with us, that we are to communicate the gospel and all its doctrines in the common language of the people. Surely we have an obligation upon us that when we stand to preach the gospel, that we use words that are familiar to the people who hear in order that they might comprehend the wonderful message of the gospel, in order that they too might know the wonderful works of God. And is there not a wonderful work like the gospel? We could think of creation. You could think of redemption. What is creation in comparison to redemption? Creation is a wonderful act. God spoke. But what is redemption? Redemption is a wonderful act of God whereby we see the justice and the holiness and the love and the grace and the mercy of our great God. And therefore, when the people heard the gospel in their own language, Surely this would impress upon the church in the 21st century that we are to be ones who seek to convey that message accurately using words that people can understand in the modern vernacular. This is incumbent upon us. We're not talking about changing the message. God forbid that we should do this because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation and we must be extremely accurate in what we seek to convey. But friends, we must convey it in a way that people can understand and when we use words that are not too familiar, we should endeavor to explain them. Oh, we know we cannot bring anyone into the kingdom of God. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God because they are foolishness unto him. We know that. But nevertheless, it is incumbent upon us in order to convey these glorious things that we find in the gospel, that we are to labor, that we are to look for the right words and present these words, these gospel truths to the people looking for and longing for and praying for the Holy Spirit to make these things effectual that he alone can do.
There is another thing in these verses, these opening verses, that is a wonderful sense of encouragement, and it should be a sense of encouragement to every single one of us here. The people, when they heard the gospel, what does it say? Verse 7, they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? They were amazed at the gospel being proclaimed to them, or the wonderful words of God, or the wonderful works of God being proclaimed to them by Galileans. Why Galileans? Well, Galileans were country folk. And Galileans were nobodies. And Galileans were ones who had difficulty with their language. Their linguistic skills were not what it should be. They hadn't got the polished speech. And very often they couldn't pronounce the words correctly because of where they came from. And here they were, these Galileans, standing up and declaring the wonderful works of God. And they were amazed, and rightly so. The gospel was communicated by nobodies. It wasn't the scribes, it wasn't the Pharisees, it wasn't the highly educated. It was the uncouth countrymen and women who declared the wonderful works of God. This would remind us, friends, and it would humble us. Not many mighty are called. Paul tells us in Corinthians. Now he's talking there about being called into the church, into the kingdom of God. And what he's saying is there's not many mighty. There's not many princes. There's not many kings or queens or rulers or presidents that are called into the Christian church. That is true. Some are, but some are not. Generally speaking, it's the lower classes that are called into the church. It's the lower classes that God favors. And he has a right to do as he pleases. And here there were those who were regarded by the world as nobodies. And they were preaching like they never heard preaching before. Because they were preaching in the power and in the demonstration of the Spirit. As you can imagine then, the reaction was mixed. One of them said, as our title of our sermon is, What meaneth this? And others mocked. These are two typical reactions that we get when we seek to pre present the gospel. We get other reactions, of course, but these are typical. Some people genuinely want to hear and want to know what this is all about. And we love if we get an opportunity to be able to speak to persons like that who hear of the gospel and, and they ponder and they wonder and we want to know more. Tell us more. But others, mockery. What does it say? These men are full of new wine. Well, that's a stupid remark, really, to be honest with you, is it not? Thinking it for a moment. You've all heard a drunk. Maybe you've been a drunk yourself. You've heard a drunk speak. He can hardly put two words together. His speech is ridiculous. Here were men 
whose speech was amazing. And therefore, these people were just being ridiculous when they said that they were full of new wine. Because, as Peter goes on to tell them, it was only nine o'clock in the morning. And it's not usual for people to be drunk at nine o'clock in the morning. Well, Peter then takes this opportunity to say to him, what meaneth this? And he takes this opportunity to begin his presentation of the gospel. So what does this mean then? This phenomenon that has been recorded for us here, what does it mean? Well, I suggest to you it means three things initially. First of all, this was a fulfillment of prophecy. This was fulfillment of prophecy. And this is what Peter says directly to them in verse 16. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And what Peter is quite simply saying to them, what you have seen and heard today was previously prophesied by a prophet who ministered in the region of Judea during the time of King Uzziah hundreds of years ago, maybe up to 800 years before this happened, there was a prophet, Joel, and he ministered around the time of King Uzziah. And he had a number of prophecies. It's a very short book, but he had one or two prophecies in that book. And his first prophecy was about a great judgment that God was going to fall upon the people of Jerusalem and Judea. There would be a want of water, and there would be a great plague of locusts that would come and devour all their food. And because of this great judgment that was coming upon them, because of their wickedness, the call obviously was to go and repent. And that's always the way with the prophets. They highlight a situation, and they tell the people what they must do. And they must repent in the light of that great judgment that was going to come upon them. And then they would know a time of blessing. God would forgive the people, and they would know a time of great abundance and great fruitfulness. But at the end of that prophecy, the part that we read in Joel chapter 2, it is as if Joel took up the telescope and he looked way beyond his time, as some of the prophets did, and they looked to the day when the Messiah would come. And this is what Peter is telling us here. This is a fulfillment of that prophecy. Joel saw this some 800 years ago. Now, today, here, right in front of you, before your very eyes, that prophecy, the prophecy that the servant of the Lord prophesied many, many years ago, has now been fulfilled. I don't know if you noticed. It would not be that easy to notice, but Joel began his prophecy by saying, quote, 
And it shall come to pass afterward. And it shall come to pass afterward. And then he goes and outlines what will come to pass. But when Peter cites from Joel, he changes it. He begins his prophecy there in verse 17, or his interpretation of the prophecy, I should say, in verse 17, and it shall come to pass in the last days. Joel said it would come to pass afterward. Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, interpreting the prophecy, he changes it and says, it shall come to pass in the last days. And therefore we are to understand here that Peter, an apostle, speaking and preaching infallibly, was able to take the prophecy of Joel and, if you like, update it and fully apply it to the day that he found himself in. But this was happening in the last days. Joel said it will happen afterwards. Peter, filled with the Spirit of the living God, says what has happened is in the last days. And therefore, what we see here and what they encountered on the day of Pentecost must be looked upon as a one-off, unrepeatable event. Now that might well be a controversial statement, but I do believe that Scripture would hold it out. What we see here is another act in the great plan of redemption. You think of the life of the Son of God. You think of Him coming down from heaven. You think of the incarnation. That happened once. You think of His birth. That happened once. You think of His death. That happened once. You think of the resurrection. That happened once. And these are all notable parts of the great plan of redemption. And so is this here. This is a one-off, unrepeatable event in the great plan of redemption. Now, maybe you're sitting there this evening and you're thinking about Acts chapter 10. And we'll come to that sometime when we go through this, but we'll come to it. But basically what happened in Acts chapter 10? Well, Peter under a vision, was commanded to go and preach the gospel to Cornelius, a centurion. And he was a Gentile. And if you like, here was Peter bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. And he had to have a vision before he would go, because the Jews would have nothing to do with the Gentiles ordinarily. But having received this vision and everything working in place, he ended up going to Cornelius' house, and Cornelius gathered together people to hear the gospel, and they listened to Peter as he preached. And as he was preaching the gospel, something happened, something again wonderful, something sudden, as God does. And in Acts chapter 10, I'm going to read one or two verses from Acts chapter 10 at verse 44. While Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all them which heard the word. And they of the circumcision which believed were astonished. Why? Because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. 
for they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter then answered Peter, Can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized, which have received the Holy Ghost as well as we? Now you might say, well, that sounds very similar to what happened on the day of Pentecost. And I would have to agree with you. It is very similar, but it's not the same. What's the difference? Well, there was no rushing mighty wind or something like sounded like a rushing mighty wind. And there was no things that appeared like cloven tongues as of fire. That didn't happen. Yes, they were most certainly filled with the Holy Spirit. And yes, they spoke with tongues. That's true. That was exactly the same as what happened here. But it wasn't the same event. And therefore, we le we're led to this opinion that what we're looking at here is a one-off. It's a one-off act in the great plan of redemption. Why am I saying this? Well, I'm saying this, friends, because there are some people, and they may well be dear Christians, and they may well be sincere Christians, and they will try to tell us that we have to have some kind of experience like what they had there at Pentecost. We say no. Oh, yes, we know that we are urged to be filled with the Spirit. And indeed, Peter and Paul, on subsequent occasions, were filled with the Spirit. And yes, this is something that we should desire continually to be filled with the Spirit. We need the Spirit. You cannot preach without the Spirit. You cannot witness without the Spirit. If you do it without the Spirit, you're doing it in the flesh. But this is a one-off. Totally unique. God was doing something wonderful. And yes, we do crave the Spirit's blessing. And we seek to be filled with the Spirit more and more and more. But we cannot expect to have an identical experience like this here. We must let the Bible direct us. This was a one-off, unrepeatable experience. What else does this mean then? Well, secondly, we're in the last days. Again, there's much confusion about the last days. But the last days began when Jesus Christ came first. And the last days will end when he returns. We don't know when that will be. And if anyone seeks to tell you when that will be, you must avoid them. Or you must tell them clearly and plainly they are deluded. No one knows the day nor the hour. Only the Father. All we know is he will come. He must come. He will come. He will come suddenly. Just like the Holy Spirit came there suddenly. He'll come like a thief in the night. 
He'll come like the lightning as it flashes from one end of the sky to the other. So will, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. In the last of the last days, he will come. He will wind up human history. There'll be no more gospel. There'll be no more repentance. There'll be no more calling upon God in prayer. None of that. It'll be all over. Our eternal destiny shall be sealed and secured. We'll either be in heaven or we'll be in hell. We'll be in heaven for eternity or we'll be in hell for eternity. Oh, what a thought. What a thought here tonight when the gospel's before you, when the Savior has been held out to you, when you have been urged to call upon him. We're in the last days. What do we mean by that? What we mean is, friends, there's nothing new coming from heaven. Oh, we long for the blessing of the God to be upon the gospel. Yes, we cry out for that, but there's nothing new coming from heaven. There's no other message, no other gospel. There's no other way to be right with God, none whatsoever. And what an insult to think that there should be another way. When you consider the cost of salvation, when you consider all that Jesus Christ undertook in order to save his people, why should something else come? Is Jesus and his life and his death not good enough for you? Do you need something else? Well, friend, hear this. Hear it loud and clear tonight. This is the last days. There's nothing else coming. You have to make your peace with God through Christ or you shall ever perish. That's as simple as that. <coughs> Therefore, let us make our calling and election sure. Let us avail ourselves of the salvation that's found in Christ. Let us not disdain him. Let us not look for anything else. Oh, we live in a day and in a time when people are taken up with novelties and they want something new. What we want is to experience the truth and the power of the gospel today. This gospel here, when it was preached, 3,000 were added to the church. It's got power. Why? Because it's God's righteousness. It's God's way. And as he says... In this interpretation, Peter there, in the last days, there's nothing new going to happen. Nothing else God has to do. When the last of his people are brought to faith, it will be the end. The curtain will be drawn upon this world. A great change shall come upon it. Terrible things will happen at the end. We're in the last days. It may well be that you're in your last days. Days, yes, not years, days. It's high time then. You're closed in with Christ. What does it mean? It means it's the last days. This is what it means. And these people at Jerusalem who attended 
the Passover and awaited for Pentecost 50 days after. To them, he was saying, it's the last days. It's time for you now to come to here and to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. It's time because this is the last days. God's going to do nothing new. Well, briefly and thirdly, Joel ended his prophecy and Peter ended this section where he elaborated on the prophecy of Joel with much the same words. Joel ended telling the people to call upon the name of the Lord. Peter did exactly the same at verse 21. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. There that promise that Joel gave to his people some 800 years ago, it's the same promise that Peter said to those in the first century, not long after the Holy Spirit had come, that whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. No exceptions. None are excluded. Peter didn't know who, who, who he was addressing. Joel didn't know who he was addressing. He didn't single them out. There they were, a vast crowd, a great crowd of Jerusalem there, attending the Pentecostal feast. And Peter preaches to them that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And friends, I believe that this is the work of the gospel minister, that he is to be indiscriminate in the pro proclamation of the gospel. And he is to uh, urge and to exhort and to persuade all his hearers that they too might put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that they might call upon the name of the Lord. Everything that you can associate with Jesus Christ, you are to call upon him. He's the Savior. You are to call upon Him. He's the one who can forgive your sins. You are to call upon Him. You are to call upon Him because He alone can save. He is the only mediator. He's the only one who has come down from heaven. He is the only one who can take you to heaven. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Saved from all your sins. Saved from all the things that the law of God could never save you from. Because it was never designed to save. And many people are still relying upon their own good works. Upon their law keeping. Upon their obedience. Upon their moral uprightness. And somehow they think that this will carry favor with God. But no. Our... Good works, as the Bible says, are but filthy rags. They are but filthy rags in comparison to the glorious, spotless righteousness of Jesus Christ. Have you then called upon the Lord? Have you then forsaken your own righteousness? And have you called upon the name of the Lord? Because whosoever shall call upon him shall be saved. Not might be saved, but shall be saved. It's a promise. He gave that promise there to the devotees of the Pentecostal feast. And we issue that same 
promise to all tonight to come and call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. What does this mean? Well, it means that this was a once for all unrepeatable event. And we're in the last days. And in these last days you are to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ.